Our scripture this morning comes from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Jaffa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Jaffa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you, a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is God's word. Susan, thank you. Uh, good morning, all. Uh, my name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer City. We're in the midst of a series on the book of Acts. We've come back into it. Um, as, uh, as we've been kind of tracking the early church, took a break for the summer to look at our theological vision. Uh, if you were not here or you were here for a few of those, I uh, would highly encourage you to go back, use the app, uh, and work your way through that series of sermons. Very, very helpful in terms of uh, a series of family meetings, as Drew called them, where we really learned about who we are and what we're trying to, to do. Uh, but Acts really begins with... Uh, this statement back in chapter 1, let me just read it to you, and it kind of frames the whole book. Uh, it's Jesus' words. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the book of Acts is really this playing out of the people of God witnessing to his uh, coming kingdom in <clears throat> Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so, as it's a story of the early church in a period of revival, it's really a series of illustrations of what happens as revival breaks out and as the concentric circles begin to sort of break out from there and more and more people are exposed to and hear the gospel. Now, last week, uh, you may recall, we highlighted a barrier to the gospel's advance, uh, and it was this man named Saul, a fierce persecutor of the church. 
uh, who Jesus meets on the road to Damascus and converts him uh, to Paul. Changes his name, changes his job description, uh, changes his whole life. And he becomes this fierce evangelist and church planner. Uh, This week, we're going to look at yet another barrier, another hurdle that has to be cleared uh, in order for the gospel to continue to push forward into, for this time period, the uttermost parts of the earth. By the way, you're sitting in one of the uttermost parts of the earth uh, for the early church, right? I mean, they weren't thinking about North America, uh, didn't even didn't even know what North America was or existed. Uh, and so the fact that even we're sitting here uh, is pretty amazing to have read back into Acts and see the, kind of the beginning of the story. The barrier this morning, though, uh, that I want to look at isn't a man, it's a state of mind. It's a, it's a self-righteousness that had come to characterize the Jews. And like Saul was blinded by his religious obedience, so this worldview had blinded the Jewish people to understanding God's purposes in the whole world and actually doing what Jesus told them to do, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. They, they had forgotten God's words to Abraham all the way back at the beginning of the story in Genesis 12. Uh, Through you and your children, God said to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They had forgotten that. So, so take a look at the insert uh, in your worship folder. Uh, you should have received one. If you don't have one, uh, look on or uh, try to follow along here. But there you'll find this outline. And the three points that I want to work through as we look at this passage together uh, this morning. First, the problem, that is, erecting barriers. These barriers that had been formed over the span of many, many years, but nonetheless existed, and the problem that presented. Secondly, the solution. And how, as Paul says in the assurance of pardon, Jesus kills the hostility. Jesus' death kills the hostility that was produced by the barriers Uh, tears them down, demolishes them, Uh, as you see there in the sermon title, the distinctions and all the stuff that comes with that. And then thirdly, what's the new community formed look like? It doesn't make distinctions, right? How does that happen? And what it produces being peace and unity in uh, uh, in the result. So the summary teaching really, or the summary lesson is that the good news of Jesus Christ demolishes distinctions and produces a peaceful Unity. The good news of Jesus Christ demolishes distinctions and produces uh, peaceful unity. So first, uh, let's look at erecting barriers and this problem. Uh, what is it about this vision that makes Peter so uncomfortable? What you have to uh, know is it's not printed for you there, and I would encourage you, if you are so inclined, to go back and look. But Acts 10 and 11 kind of go together, okay? Uh, Acts 10 is kind of long. But there is uh, this vision that Peter has uh, as he's praying, goes into this trance and so forth and so on, ends up going to this guy Cornelius' house, has this experience, uh, basically preaches a sermon toward the end of chapter 10, and then the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles who are there. So what we read this morning, what Susan read to us this morning, is Peter returning to Jerusalem and kind of giving a report. So it's a summary. And that's part of the reason I wanted to go go there is chapter 11 is shorter, but you get a bird's eye view of the whole whole encounter. So where did this come from, and and, and why do these, when he comes, why do these guys criticize him? What's What's the problem really that's going on here? Well, one major way that Peter distinguished himself as a Jew 
from the Gentiles around him, and some of you may be familiar with this, was by what he ate, okay? The, the dietary laws that were given in the Old Testament became a way for Jews to separate themselves from Gentiles. In other words, they would say, we eat this, we don't eat that, right? Those types of people eat those things. We, God's people, eat this stuff, right? So when God tells him in this vision that any of the animals were okay to kill and eat, he is, by the way, endorsing hunting. (laughs) Just to be clear, okay? Nothing wrong with rising early in the morning when it's still dark, going and killing, and then eating, of course. Don't forget about the eating part, right? But when God tells him that any of the animals are okay to kill and eat, he can't fully make sense of this, all right? Because there's a massive shift that has occurred because of the work of Jesus, but it still hasn't fully registered with Peter. And what I would kind of underscore to you is as you're reading through the book of Acts and you get to chapter 10 and 11, things are really changing here, really changing, just part of the reason that this vision is so significant. What did all the animals on this great sheet have in common? Well, God made them all, right? He made them all. And in the context of the vision, he has gifted them all to Peter for his enjoyment. But even as Peter's still experiencing this this dullness, this confusion, what my high school Latin teacher called being dense, right? He's still dense. God clarifies himself. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Because when he presents the vision, Peter says, uh, by no means, Lord, I, n- nothing unclean or common has ever entered my mouth or gone into my body. Uh, but God is saying, because Jesus Christ has come, you can eat whatever you want. Jesus himself said, it's not what goes in the mouth that defiles someone, it's what comes out, right? And the paradigm shift God is highlighting for Peter is much bigger than that, though. The word here that's translated common, uh, and if you see where I'm referring to, it's in verse Uh, 9, okay? Peter responds, by no means. Verse 9, the voice came a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This word common can also be translated as profane. In other words, not to be associated with the holy or the sacred or the set apart. And so the Jews had applied this to food, but over time, they began to apply it to other people as well. Uh, And so, as a result, Uh, Sharing food with another person who was unclean meant you were sharing unclean food with unclean people, which made you unclean and thus defiled, profane. You couldn't be a part of the holy, sacred, the set-apart community of faith anymore as far as the Jews were concerned. That's what's behind Peter's comment. And as Peter tells, tells it, when the vision was over, Immediately, there's this knock on his door from three Gentiles inviting him to go with them to Cornelius, a Gentile's house. Now, what was the lesson Peter learned in the vision? Well, it's not printed for you, but let me read it. Acts, verse, or excuse me, Acts 10, verse uh, 28. He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So as far as Peter was concerned, that was the lesson. And he says, you know, it's not okay for us Jews to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But, but, but God, has, God has impressed on me, I, I shouldn't do that anymore. But look at the passage from today, okay? 
So it's just all setting up some, some background for you, because it's important to know, since we didn't read chapter 10, what all was going on there. But look at the passage today from uh, Acts 11. Look at what happens when Peter arrives in Jerusalem. So l- just look at the first couple of verses, okay? He arrives in Jerusalem, and word spreads that not only have the Gentiles received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but Peter was part of it, and Peter was eating with them when they did. <gasps> you know, they're freaking out. Peter's criticized by his brothers from this so-called circumcision party. Not a party where they circumcised one another, but more like a political party, okay? Let me just be clear about that in case there's any confusion. This is not, this is not what the circumcision party was, okay? More like a political party, okay? Easy for us to think about it in, in those terms. They say to him, you ate with uncircumcised people. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because they viewed the world, this circumcision party, in terms of black and white. You were either one of God's people, which meant you had received the mark of circumcision, or you weren't one of God's people, which meant you hadn't received the mark of circumcision. This party taught and demanded even that in addition to faith in Jesus, a Gentile had to be circumcised. So it wasn't enough if you as a Gentile came to them and said, hey, I believe in Messiah. They said, welcome, we want to have you. The circumcision party said, no, you are not welcome until you get circumcised. Then you can come in and be a part of us. So what began in the Old Testament as a sign of God's covenant ultimately meant to point his people to a deeper work of circumcising their hearts. So that was a symbol of what God wanted to see happen inside of them. It ultimately became a measuring stick for whether a person was in or out. And for the Jews, and especially this circumcision party, rules became more important than people. And that's what legalism does, you see. It elevates the rules to where the rules matter more than people do. It creates barriers. It demands distinctions be made between those who keep the rules and those who don't, between those who are in and those who are out. And even with the coming of Jesus, even with his life and his death, his resurrection, ascension, The leaders in Jerusalem, as the apostle comes to them and says, look at what has happened. They make this external act more significant than an internal posture of faith. They weren't even able to rejoice with Peter. Peter comes to them and says, hey, the church is growing, guys. And what is their response? Let's party. Praise God. This is wonderful. No, they're grumpy. They're mad. Now, how has this attitude come to roost in our hearts today? Uh, and some of this may be, may be hard uh, to hear. It's hard for me to put together uh, because oftentimes uh, what happens when you're preaching, and I don't do it very often, uh, and so I do enjoy the times when I do because the week you, you're spending in the passage, uh, you end up examining your own heart quite a bit, whereas uh, you all get to examine your hearts, hopefully, uh, in the midst of the worship service and then in community groups of following, at least that's the goal, uh, for the guy who is up here, uh, it's a week-long process. And so part of Sunday is just bringing you into what God has been doing uh, in us uh, throughout the week. So uh, I hope it's helpful. I really do. But we erect these same walls. We create these same barriers. And it happens through the same self-righteous worldview that the Jews adopted. The walls that we create create separation. They allow us to make lots of distinctions between who's in and who's out, who's acceptable to us and of course to God, and to not, and, and, and who's not acceptable to us. And it creeps in all over the place. We say things like, 
you don't associate with those people, do you? You're not friends with those types of people, are you? So what measuring sticks do we have in place? Well, there are silly ones like when I am uh, behind someone who has an FSU tag or I see a, a spear on the front of their car and they pull out in front of me, maybe, they're, maybe they got somewhere to be. They're far more important than me. That's okay. Maybe they're on their cell phone texting, but they're probably texting somebody very important. It's okay. Now, if someone who has a UF tag uh, on the back of their car pulls out in front of me or drives slow or does anything else that remotely makes me just the slightest bit frustrated behind the wheel. Gator fans. Typical that they would drive like that. What do you expect? They root for UF. Now, it's just kind of silly, right? But there's more significant ones where we become very self-righteous in how we judge. You're one of those people. You watch The Bachelorette or any type of reality TV, if I'm honest. Your kids are in public school? Your kids are homeschooled? You mean you don't work out? Uh, you mean you're an Episcopalian and you think you're a Christian too? You're, you, you guys are going to let a Democrat join your church? <clears throat> your daughter's dating a black guy? That one's not as funny. But I'm serious. This is, this is how this begins to kind of form in our hearts. We create walls. We create barriers. Who's in? Who's out? What's acceptable? What's not? Based on things that have absolutely nothing to do with the gospel. And in fact, it tells on us that the gospel has not invaded those nooks and crannies of our lives yet. Another diagnostic question to help us. It's not printed for you, but let me read chapter 10, verse 45 uh, while Peter is still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on everyone who heard the word. Now listen to this. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Do you hear that? They are amazed that even the Gentiles, the goyim, the unclean, the nasty, defiled, gross people, would receive the Holy Spirit. And as Peter says later, in the same way we did. Right? Why are they amazed that the Holy Spirit is indiscriminately falling on these, on these uncircumcised Gentiles? Doesn't he realize what he's doing? Right? So who do you have a hard time believing would become a Christian? Who, who if you heard that that person or that type of person got converted, you'd be surprised? Who in your mind... Who in your mind is so far gone that they'll never get in? What category of person? So for me, uh, to, to let you into the grossness and blackness of my own heart, for me it's pedophiles. Now why is that? Because I've distinguished my sin from theirs because in the deep places of my heart, I really do struggle to believe that Jesus had to come as far to save me as he has to save them. That's the problem. That's the reason why when I think of them, I think, oh, they're, they're hopeless. Now, where are you caught? That's where I was caught this week in a number of places. Where are you caught? Even as I'm talking, we need to be humbled, see? That's the problem. And the solution that Jesus offers can do that. So let's look at it. You, you might have noticed there 
<clears throat> that the, uh, and Chris brought it out, the call to worship and the assurance of pardon are part of the same passage from Ephesians 2. So as we look at the solution, I'm going to hone in on specifically the assurance of pardon. So you can, you can look at it there in your worship folder. The call to worship is a description of God's work to save through Jesus. And the assurance of pardon is an application of that, a consequence of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it applies directly to what we're reading here and the lessons we learn from Acts 10 and Acts 11. So look in your worship folder at the assurance, okay? And uh, I don't want to read the whole thing, but I do want to read to you a couple of uh, verses from it. So follow along. This is Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, Paul says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, what is Paul saying? How does Jesus' work demolish distinctions? And I think there's really two things going on, and I'd summarize it to you like this. Uh, So if you want to think about it, think about it like this. God came out because Jesus went in. Okay? God came out because Jesus went in. Paul says the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down in his flesh. Now what's he talking about? He's he's referring to the walls and the partitions that existed in the temple uh, at uh, at that time. So let me describe this to you. Uh, Some of you may have seen pictures of it uh, before. You can look it up on Google Uh, It's readily accessible. I would encourage you to do that. But what you find there is the outer court, so the very far outer edges were called the court of the Gentiles. So if you were not a Jew, that's where you were allowed to go, right? Uh, So then there's a wall. Inside of there is the court of the women. So Jewish women could go into there, but of course no further because there's another wall. And inside that wall, you're sort of in the building now itself, and there's the court of Jewish men. So only Jewish men were allowed in there. Then you go forward, and there's a room, and it was the holy place, and only priests could go in the holy place. And then there's a veil, and of course, the most holy place, or the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Now, when Jesus actually took his last breath, the Gospels tell us what about that veil? That it was separated <clears throat> or excuse me, that it was torn from top to bottom. That's the veil separating the most holy place from the holy place. And as Paul's imagery indicates, uh, not only did Jesus tear the veil as his flesh was torn, but the barriers kept coming down. That's what he's saying. The court wall separating the men from the women, that one came down. And most radically, the wall separating the Gentiles from the rest of the temple came down. Some of you may be wondering, why are the walls even there in the first place? Why did they build the temple like this? Why all these barriers to get to God? Well, to answer that, you've got to go all the way back to page 3 of the Bible. The Bible is a story after all. So you've got to go back to the beginning of the story. And 
on page three, when the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden believed the lie of Satan, when they questioned God's love for them, that he really was for them, they sinned and God expelled them, kicked them out of the garden, destined to wander in restlessness. And as a consequence for their sin, God placed a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden. So sin separated them at that point, and of course everyone since, from the presence and the peace of God. That's what the garden was, a place where you could find the presence and the peace of God. You could walk and talk with God in the cool of the day. It's what we were designed for. So the walls in the temple were there to remind the people that their sin had separated them from a holy God. But of course over time, because our sins have separated us from a holy God, they've also separated us from one another. And so they decided to build more walls. And in order to gain access and fellowship, someone had to be judged for every act of unbelief, for every failure to believe God's love since that first one in the garden. And so, let me put it this way, Jesus went in, or better yet, under the flaming sword, and he took it head on. And because of that, we don't have to wander in restlessness anymore. The presence and peace of God is ours. It can be ours. Because, as Paul says, Jesus killed the hostility between us and God, as well as our hostility with each other. Access to God is now free and unfettered. Paul says we have access in one spirit to the Father. Not only that, not only that, but because Jesus goes in, the veil is torn, and what happens? God comes out. And how do we know that? The book of Acts is God going out. Going out of the temple, going out into Judea, going out into Samaria, going out into the uttermost parts of the earth. What? To do what? To gather in his people. His people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue. You see, Jesus Christ, the ultimate insider, became an outsider so that the outsiders could come inside. That's the gospel. Jesus was separated. He was alienated. He was made a stranger to his father, as Paul describes us in the assurance of pardon, as he absorbed the curse due to us on the cross. His death put the hostility to death. And he did it by making peace with God and man, but also by making peace with Jew and Gentile, also by making peace with every other category and distinction that we have come up with. The Bible teaches that everyone, everyone is separated from Christ at birth. Everyone's alienated from God. Everyone's a stranger without hope. But now, as he says, verse verse 13, or 14, excuse me, But now in Christ Jesus, those outside are brought in and made members of the family of God. Enemies are turned into children. There's no one, by the way, newsflash, no one in heaven is there because they earned it. They are there because Jesus earned heaven for them. So everyone's on the same playing field. There's no place for distinctions. You don't view others through the lens of their tribe or race or social class. If you're a Christian, you can't. Those differences... And the self-righteous hostility that surrounds them has been killed through the death of Jesus. That's what Paul says. Again, we're all saved by grace. Go back to the call to worship from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We're all saved by grace, thus making null and void any ability to boast, any ability to look down on another person, or to think of ourselves as superior to another person. In fact, you know, God always does this amazing. Uh, Our community Bible reading passage for Friday was Galatians 3, 
And so uh, let me just read a couple of verses from the end of Galatians 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Here it is. There is therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying the walls have come down. They have been destroyed. The distinctions have been demolished. In Christ Jesus, there are no distinctions. And so let's finish with how we see this new community being formed that makes no distinctions. Let me read to you again from Acts chapter 10. It's not printed for you there. I apologize. But Peter says this. Truly I understand. This is after his vision and everything. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So just like the garden that I mentioned earlier, the man and woman are scattered because of sin. So too at the Tower of Babel, or Babel, in Genesis chapter 11, the nations are scattered because of sin. But in the very next chapter, what happens? In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, through his family, all the nations will be gathered once again and find blessing. And he gives Abraham a preview of how he's going to do it. And in Acts chapter 10 and 11, through this vision to Peter, God is making good on his promise to Abraham from all the way back at the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 12. You realize that? All the way back at the beginning of the story. God said, this is how it's going to happen. This is what I'm going to do. If you read from Genesis up to Acts, or you read from Genesis up to the Gospels, to the beginning of the New Testament, your view begins to, to be, I don't have any idea how he's going to get this done. Because these people are whacked. They're not obedient. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. He keeps telling them to go back and do what they're supposed to do. They keep disobeying. They keep not, you know, they keep not listening. Oh, it's just awful. But you got to know, God is a God of his word. And he continues to get his work done through all the ups and downs. He is forming a new community full of men, women, and children from every tribe and every tongue and every people and nation on the earth. And you see it culminated at the end of the story in Revelation chapter 5 where John gets a, a vision of uh, the heavens and that's what's going on. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation are worshiping. So as we finish, look at the end of the passage that's printed for you in the worship folder uh, in Acts 11 verses 17 and 18. Once Peter realizes that the gospel demolishes distinctions, he says, who was I to stand in God's way? As if to say, Standing in someone's way means you're hindering their movement. They're going somewhere. You stand in their way. What are you doing? You're hindering them from getting to where it is that they're moving toward. And the word used here is the same word used by Jesus to correct the disciples about children. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And if that's true, then what would ever make you think you had a right to make distinctions? That's what Peter's saying. Not only that, look at verse 18. Remember last week? Remember the story of Saul becoming Paul last week? You have to be awakened to your blindness. God himself has to remove the scales from your eyes. You come to know you've been made clean. That's, that's, that's salvation. Salvation is what God does. And the Bible tells us there's no distinction. Here's how it says there's no distinction. It says all humans are made in the image of God, making them equally valuable and full of dignity. 
it also says, all humans have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. No amens. That's okay. It's all right. You're not used to me. I get it. Everyone who says, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That simple prayer or any variation on that theme is the promise of the Scriptures. Paul says you and I are saved by grace. Chris highlighted it again and again as he was reading, which I really appreciated. You and I are saved by grace, and only the gospel of grace is the way to humility. Only the gospel of grace can give you humility. It kills your pride. It kills your superiority complex. Because when you've tasted grace, you can't make distinctions because something supernatural changes even your desire to make them. There's no one you can't eat with. There's no one whose house you can't enter. There's no one who's hopeless or too far gone to be out of the reach of the gospel's grace. No one. And studying this passage this week, the the animosity and the downright bigotry that the Jews held for the Gentiles got me thinking about a story uh, the lady's name is Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you may have heard of her, uh, but her, her, uh, her testimony and the, the books that she has written and her, uh, her story is just so amazing. She was a tenured professor of English at uh, Syracuse. In her late 20s, became a lesbian and advocated very strongly for the LGBT community. <clears throat> and in 1997, she began researching the religious right. And as she put it, this is a quote from her testimony, their politics of hatred for people like me and she was writing an article against the, the uh, Promise Keepers movement. And a response to that article triggered her sitting down with a guy, I guess he wrote her or something. Uh, and um, she, she ended up sitting down with this guy. His name was Ken Smith. And he was a pastor. And he became Rosaria's friend and resource on the religious right. But much more than that, as they ate and drank and talked and challenged and befriended one another, Someone from a very different background from him, to be sure, but something, someone that Rosaria had never experienced before, and it was a Christian who saw her as a fellow sinner, not an unredeemable liberal intellectual who happened to be a lesbian. He, he talked about his sins with her. He confessed them to her. He, he spoke clearly of his brokenness and his need of Jesus' renewing grace every day, and she was shocked because she had never met a person like that. And ever since I've read that story and even listened to her uh, talk about it and her experience, I've been blown away because what happened was uh, the, the shock of a Christian acting like a Christian gave her a, a view, an a, a experience of Jesus that she had never had before. This guy demonstrated the grace of Jesus in a way that I really hope we as a congregation can and will as we seek to apply the lessons of this passage. As we, as, as at the end of the passage, it says, God has granted repentance unto life, even to the Gentiles, that we would offer repentance, the gift of repentance leading to life to our city and our county and our world. Uh, and may the gospel work that into us because only it can. So let me pray that the gospel would indeed do that as a, uh, as the musicians come back. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for going in underneath the flaming sword and taking it head on. Uh, You, the ultimate 
insider, the one who had, had been in from all eternity, who had who'd been accepted by God, who had done exactly what it was that he asked you to do every day of your life. Thank you for going under that so that the Father could come out and begin the gathering of all of his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we are a testimony to that. So thank you. Thank you for the work that you did to accomplish that. And we pray. We pray that the, the, the experience of that truth would indeed make us a people full of humility, full of distinctionless living. And that as we interact with our community, as we interact with our neighbors, our coworkers, and everyone else, uh, that they would see you in us and it would cause them to glorify you as we read even here uh, in uh, the passage from Acts. Uh, Lord Jesus, humble us. Uh, and, and, and as you humble us, make us more like you, full of grace, full of truth, that would be to your honor and glory, we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, just a quote from the song we sang earlier. Two, two wonders here that I confess. My worth on the one hand and my unworthiness. Uh, and then she says, my value fixed my ransom paid at the cross. So you see both uh, the, the dignity and value that we have that God would come so far to rescue us uh, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And yet the sin that we needed to be uh, paid, the debt that we owed needed to be paid, and all of that was done at the cross. Uh, and so now in Christ we have humility. Now in Christ we not only have humility, we have power and confidence and security. Uh, and so as you go, receive these words of the benediction, and may they, may they drain themselves deep down into your soul uh, such that they really do change you and make you a person uh, like what we described earlier. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.